Hi, and welcome to Edge with Dr. Stephen Brown. This podcast series focuses on the story, the personal narrative of Australians who have pushed at the edge. They have been pioneers who are doing amazing things that are a little bit different to the everyday. Sometimes their stories are told and well celebrated, and sometimes these stories are reasonably well hidden. Dr. Stephen Brown is a highly regarded leader in the education sector, both in Australia and internationally. He is the Managing Director of the Brown Collective and has a strong interest in people and getting to know their stories. He has developed this podcast series to introduce you to some of Australia's finest citizens. Welcome to this latest episode of Ed John, Dr. Stephen Brown, and it's my great pleasure to welcome a guest to this particular episode of Edge. This person is, uh, on all measures and all counts, an achiever right across the board, a former Paralympian, a presenter, a keynote speaker, a passionate advocate for people with disabilities, an elite athlete and a person who currently sits on the Queensland Premier's Council for domestic and family violence. She's also an ambassador for Kids Helpline, Muscular Dystrophy Queensland and Sporty Wheelies and Disabled Association, an accomplished media presenter, having appeared on uh, Channel 7 and Channel 9 and Channel 7's Great Day Out. It's uh, my great pleasure to welcome this fabulous Australian, Carney Liddell. Welcome, Carney. Oh, thank you so much. Carney, take us back. It's a very impressive uh, set of achievements from uh, being an elite athlete to uh, your academic achievements and your continually impressive uh, public presence in terms of advocacy around critical issues of domestic violence and uh, disabilities. But take us back to the, the fair city of Rockhampton. What are your reflections? What are your most cherished memories about your youth, your early childhood memories? Yeah, look, the beef capital of Australia, Rockhampton, was the, probably the perfect place for me, somebody living with a, um, a muscle-wasting disease or a disability to grow up. Of course, I didn't know it at the time, but when you reflect on it, it was just one of those towns that allowed me to be me, the active, sporty person that I wanted to be in a time that disabled sport and Paralympics wasn't a thing. So, you know, I was born with a muscle wasting disease and I walked at the age of three. I wasn't supposed to walk, you know, very typical black and white medical diagnosis of being born with a muscle wasting disease you're not supposed to walk or crawl or live past your teenage years you know my darling parents were told not to do any exercise with me or rehab because it would only make the condition worse and I was just really lucky that my dad was an athlete and he still is and just sort of had that really simplistic idea in his head that that just didn't make sense he's always exercised it's always made him feel better why not give it a whirl, really, I'd say, was their, was their feelings around um, starting the On A Crazy Rehab Program. And like I said, I call it crazy is because everyone with all those degrees told my parents without degrees not to do it. So the reason why I think Rockney was such a great place for me to grow up was because it was sort of like rough and tumble and, oh, well, she'll fall over, she's okay. I did nippers at Emi Park and you can only imagine 
how bad I was <laughs> at nippers. Yeah. You know, like I walk really with a, you know, with a gait and I'm very weak. I can't lift my arms above my head. I can't really walk on sand. One little tiny way, probably the size of, I don't know, your foot would knock me over. But they kind of just let me do it and didn't make me feel like I was risky or a burden or shouldn't be doing it. So I think that's what that town delivered me. And also just a really amazing amount of support. I think because mum and dad had such good friends as well. They, you know, they had those sort of group of mates that they met really young and they're still mates today and they're, you know, they're nearly 70. So I grew up around a lot of kids and weirdly a lot of those kids had disabilities as well. So it was just one of those fortunate situations where I grew up around other people with differences which made me feel pretty typical and normal and cherished and I guess celebrated rather than you know what most people with disabilities feel which I do now as a 42 year old and we're made to feel more like a burden and that we're the riskiest people in the room to support serve or employ I didn't feel that as a child and I think I thank my lucky stars that didn't happen because it certainly gave me that foundation and self-esteem before the world <laughs> tried to take it away. Yeah, take us back to going to school and uh, your school friends and your school mates. They, by nature, um, caring and supportive and uh, challenging and equally disarming and uh, just treated you like one of them? Or... Totally. If you really looked into my high school life, I guess there was one bully, but in terms of being bullied like you would think I would have been bullied, I guess... I, I definitely wasn't. That wasn't my story. I've, I've certainly been bullied and harassed and other things as an adult. But as a child, again, just really lucky to find, I guess, my crew really young. Um, at kindy, I think I met my best friend now. That's still my best friend. And I think mum did fight for me to go along to primary school a mainstream primary school, because you could probably imagine the 80s inclusion at schools into mainstream schools wasn't typical. And to be honest, it still isn't. It's still quite a challenging situation for most parents of children with disabilities, which is a shame. But back then, it just wasn't a thing. So I think she probably did fight for me to go along to St. Anthony's school, but I didn't know about it, of course. And then, yeah, from there, again, the teachers just let me do really like dangerous things like get up and close the windows at the end of the day you know I'd get up there with my calipers and I'd climb up I wanted to be the one that closed the windows and I wanted to be the one that played softball and netball and basketball and and it was really again I get I go back to being simple because I mean really complicated disability in this country now but back then it was so simple it was that David Zemmett was his name. He was the tallest, strongest kid <laughs> and nicest kid. Probably should have married uh, David Zemmett. So he was pretty much given the duty or job to get me around. So whenever I had to get up a hill or steps or whatever, he would be there. Wow. And that's as simple as it was. And then I think I was about 14 when public liability kind of became a thing that we all understood and schools really embraced. Something happened when I was in grade 10. And I, I, I always say it's public liability. I don't know what it was. But whatever it was is what disables us the most now still. And it happened when I was 14. And all of a sudden, David Zemmett wasn't allowed to help me anymore. 
and I wasn't allowed to play sport at school. And if drama was upstairs, then I wasn't allowed to do drama. That's what happened to me, even though I never, I've never fallen down quite the stairs in my life. And I would suggest that most able-bodied kids fell over way more than I did, but they were all allowed to do those things. Um, and all of a sudden I wasn't. And that was pretty much the start of the rest of my life fighting to do the basics really. And I'm still fighting at 42 to kind of diminish this crazy, unfair, incorrect notion that I'm the riskiest person everywhere I go. And um, it's kind of like occupational health and safety gone mad and it's not real or true. The legislation doesn't suggest it. There is no laws. Like it's really interesting how this all crept into our um our perceptions because when, when you go to America it ain't there because they actually made a law to make sure it doesn't happen to people with disabilities so we call America the land of Disneyland you know Disneyland for people in wheelchairs because yeah they brought in a law which said you can't actually tell people with disabilities they can't come into your venue or can't come on your flight or can't go on a ride at Disneyland so it's just it's a real shame that we're here but if we keep talking about it hopefully people will start realizing that what they're doing is actually making our lives so much harder than it has to be. Well, that's uh, great insights, Carney. Um, I'll, I'll circle back to that because there's a whole lot of discussion that um, I'm intrigued by and continue to get your expertise and insights. But 14 years of age, let's go back to the, um, you know, the Paralympian, the world record breaker holder. Um, I'm just admire you uh, in terms of that aspect of your life. Um, that sense of determination, discipline, training and commitment. Um, what was it like achieving that goal, the world record at 14? It's hard. Like I have really limited memories around all this stuff. It's interesting because People are so fascinated with Olympians and Paralympians, and I guess I understand it now that I'm an old, an old has been. I actually often wonder if, if it was definitely me. You know, like I feel like somebody should go back and check that was that definitely me. <laughs> it's hard for me to even um, connect with that person anymore. But look, I think I found swimming really young, and once I found something that I was good at, which you know every human needs to find. I think, in their life. And for me, obviously, I wasn't good at sport when I was racing against able-bodied kids. So I think once I found that I was good at swimming, and then, of course, it kind of, like, became my shield, I guess. I call it my shield. It was like I was good at swimming, and then all the kids back at school or in Rocky thought that I was a good swimmer. So it kind of, like, changed the narrative around me and my label of being disabled and the disabled kid so it was like oh Carney's a swimmer even now you know when I'm feeling a bit low in confidence or different or trying to prove a point to you know accept me into something I I, I typically tell people I'm, I'm a Paralympian because it just changes people's perceptions so it's been like a shield and a weapon that I've used against you know feeling different when I was 14, I broke that first world record. I, I remember going into that competition. I had never swum that fast ever before. <laughs> I definitely didn't think I was going to win. I was a 14-year-old kid from Rocky, had never been around you know, international Paralympic sport before or even really seen that many disabled people before. I trained in an A-bodied squad at the Southside Pool with a really hard coach, really strict 
German coach called Otto Sunleitner that literally trained me like I was an A-body person because he didn't know any different. And then Cyril Thomason, who is the father of Robert Robbie Thomason that unfortunately died in a car accident when he was when I was 17. He sort of took me on, Cyril. Like he was there and he, he sort of started to, to like time me because I was sort of ignored by Otto, to be honest. And I just had to keep up with everybody else, which I, as you can imagine, didn't do well. I was always lapped and people were jumping over me and the waves were full on and I was doing 10K a session. I was so like, so much slower than them. But yeah, trained twice a day, seven days a week and then arrived in China and blew them out of the water. I think, yeah, I can't tell you how shocked I was. I think maybe as shocked as everybody else. And from there, I guess that was it. I was on a trajectory towards, yeah, Paralympic life. And I think I actually liked just being around disabled people and the people I met and feeling normal. And like the majority, it was like a drug, you know. All of a sudden you were around people that looked like you. And as a girl too, like I didn't feel very pretty or wanted like all the other girls did at school. And all of a sudden I was in a world that I was like seen as pretty, really simple stuff. Uh, Not simple when you're 14, that's really big stuff. So yeah, I I, I think to be honest, I really just liked that. I don't know if I was that competitive. Everyone talks about me like being this amazing athlete. And I'm like, I don't even know if I was. I definitely trained really hard. I had to because I had to keep up with everyone. And my dad's a great athlete. So I guess I was, but I don't know. I think it was more the social aspect that I craved and wanted and kept me going. <laughs> so that's, that's really my personality. Yeah, I mean, it coming through very strongly, your resilience, your ability to push the boundaries and um, really never say never. And um, this whole question of post sports and when you went on to university and you got some um, qualifications really in terms of social work and the work you're doing now. Um, tell me a little bit further about your interest, um, your continued advocacy for people with disabilities. Well, it was just a natural thing. Once you retire from the sport of the able-bodied Olympian or a Paralympian, especially when you've got a profile and you look a certain way, it's just a given that you go into media, you know, like, oh, you'll just be a commentator or you'll be in media, which is interesting when you think about it because there's only so many spots. <laughs> like there's like two spots to be a commentator, two, two jobs. And in Australia, even back then, there, there was very limited jobs in Brisbane, Queensland for radio or TV. And even now there's none. So when I went to university to do communications at Bond, I don't even know if that's what I wanted to do. It was just I got a scholarship. Everyone said that I was a good speaker, which I can honestly say, hand on heart, I am. (laughs) Like that's one thing I am really good at and love. I love being on stage. COVID made me realise how much I loved it. I thought I was over it. And then COVID hit and went, wow, this is where I'm happiest. I like making people laugh. I like making people think and be better. And I I really like the fact that I can hopefully – change their perceptions around people with disabilities which in turn will change the fact that we're the most unemployed and abused group in the country still so first degree did that really found it hard to get a job in media because I've obviously have you ever seen anybody really in a wheelchair on tv just talking about current affairs you know or trees or the weather We're only on TV if we're Paralympians talking about the Paralympics or we're talking about disability. So 
I just couldn't get a job. And I am like the rest of the Australians with disabilities that can't get work. I was rejected so much um, in my 20s. And I really felt this weird, it's hard to describe, but I felt like I couldn't tell people I was getting rejected because I felt this burden or responsibility to try and project out to the country that we're amazing, we're positive, we're happy, we're successful, we're ambitious, we're employable, we're smart, we're intelligent, we're hot. So I didn't feel like there was room for me to say, oh, and I'm also broke. Oh, and I'm also unemployed. Oh, and I'm also rejected. Because I felt like I just, if I kept being this positive person, which I am, then people will start employing us or at least employ me. So that really didn't do well for me. As you can probably imagine, my 20s were pretty, uh, I was a hustler and a half, that's for sure. I couldn't get a job, so I had to invent one. And I started my own business because I, like most people with disabilities, if you look around, most of us that are doing well with our lives is because we've created our own career and business because we had to. And most people that I know with physical disabilities, we have more degrees than anyone in our group. And I hope to God that this next generation of kids below us don't feel that pressure. You know, like I don't want them to feel like they've got to be the best to get a job or even be a Paralympian. Like I think that, you know, so many disabled people when they acquire their disabilities, especially people say to them, oh, you can be a Paralympian now. Like it's easy. (laughs) Like if it was easy, I'd be still doing it. So you're either a Paralympian or you're in bed begging for funding. There's no, like, in-between, I feel, of representation of us. Like, we can't just be a social worker. We can't just be a lawyer. We can't just be a mother. We can't just be on television as a presenter talking about the weather. You know, we have to be talking about disability, working in disability or whatever. And, again, that's not feasible or fair. So the advocacy was built because I had no choice in the end. I guess when you've got a platform, I just felt like, for one, I had to be, I had to do it because I had no money. But two, I felt like this can't be right. It just seems so silly to me. And it still does. I got kicked off a ride just recently in Dreamworld. I was on a toddler ride with my toddler and they yanked me off the ride, left my three-year-old toddler on there and a bunch of other parents that I can pretty much guarantee you are unhealthier than I am. And if the ride broke down, they wouldn't be able to get off the ride, but I could. It made me go get a medical clearance from some non-medical Dreamworld staff member. It's just crazy stuff. So yeah, that's that's why I went back. To, that's why I went back to uni to do my master's in social work, thinking, well, this this world will accept me and think that I'm a bonus. You know, like my skill set and experience of the system and funding and and living with a disability, they'll welcome me with open arms. <laughs> and my first job interview the, for a social work position at the hospital, the head social worker told me that they were too scared I'd get sicker than everybody else and that I wouldn't be able to keep up around the hospital. I'm pretty sure you've been to a hospital, Steve, and you probably see that um, there's no stairs in the hospital. <laughs> and I looked around at the social work team and thought, well, I am definitely uh, the healthiest looking person in this team, (laughs) (laughs) if you know what I'm saying. And I've got a power assist wheelchair that nobody can keep up with. 
So I walk, oh, I wheel faster than anybody else. So it was just another perception that inhibited me getting a job. So here I am. I'm hoping one day to stop the advocacy. <laughs> but until, until we aren't the most unemployed group in the country, I will continue to fight for my brothers and sisters with disabilities. And um, just linking that back to your early comments about America and um, Disneyland and what changed in year 10 and uh, how we've actually, as a nation, continued to respond to uh, our citizens with disabilities. What are the issues, um, you know, employment, um, inclusion? What more do we need to do? How do we need to change? What needs to change? Well, after 20-something years of, of being in this space, and now obviously I'm really in this space, I'm in the government and I've studied a lot, there's a lot of things that need to change. The first thing, which is the easiest thing to change, is this perception of risk. It's not true, accurate or fair. So the fact that you think that I'm going to get sicker than everybody else or the fact that you think I'm not going to be able to keep up or the fact that you think that you're not, you're not accessible is not a reason to not employ me. All those things aren't true. Because you think about how many able-bodied people you've worked with and the amount of sick days they've taken or their work ethic, you don't judge able-bodied people on that one person that you work with that was really crap at their job or took way more sick days than you did. In fact, studies have been done to prove this, which is a shame that we had to do that. We, we put a lot of money into studies and research shows that we take less sick days, which is a shame because I know why we do that. I'm one of them. I don't take sick days because I'm too scared that I'll feed into the perception. Like I did my first speech seven weeks after giving birth. Now, I drove myself after a Caesar at a really, really high-risk pregnancy and I drove myself to that speech with my newborn and I delivered the speech on stage in enormous amounts of pain and uh, as, a, you know, as a brand new mum because I did not want to feed into the perception that I can't do these things because I'm disabled. And I've done speeches sick. I've done speeches straight after operations with a sling on, a shoulder reconstruction. So those things have to change and they're really easy to change because it's not true that you believe that we're going to be sicker or what have you. So those things are easy to change. All you've got to do there is nod your head. Accessibility-wise, don't think for a minute that you understand my accessibility needs because I can walk and I can walk upstairs. So just because I use a wheelchair doesn't mean I can't do those things. I can't walk long distances and it's easier for me to get around in a chair but there's this thing called job access, which is incredible in terms of funding for workplaces to make them accessible. It's always been and, and is currently the easiest and best ways to get funding for somebody with a disability. So there's that if you need to find a lift or, you know, whatever you have to do. Legislation, I think we actually have to mandate it. We always talk about quotas for females. None of us females wanted quotas or to force the hand, as a feminist, I think we have to do both, unfortunately, because nothing's worked. Yeah. So we have to force it. So 
So it has to be enforced by law that you've got to have so many people with disabilities. And don't forget, we're not a minority group. We're actually 20% of the nation. Like Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, they are 2 to 3% of the nation. And we often have quotas for them, which is great. I feel like we have to do the same thing with disability because it's never going to change. And also when I say Disneyland, at Disneyland they have a wheelchair line and at Dreamworld I got kicked off a toddler ride. So that's the difference. Instead of seeing me as a customer, you see me as a burden and a risk. And that's the issue. And I think then what happens is when companies that I, that I train about inclusivity and employing us, they get really excited, right? Yes, let's do it. Let's be head nodders. Then they can't find us. So that's another problem. And the reason they can't find us is, again, you've got to remember, we've been rejected so much in our lives and we're still fighting to fly. We're fighting to our rides at Dreamworld or SeaWorld or whatever. Or not SeaWorld, actually SeaWorld's amazing. We're fighting for funding. We're fighting people at the playground that come over to us and say, what happened to you? What's wrong with you? Why can't you walk? You know, I'd kill myself if I was you, if I was in a wheelchair. How are you a mother? You know, blah, blah, blah. So you've got to remember, we're so fatigued from the fight of living with disability that we don't have much left to fight for a job. So you've got to make it really easy for us. You've got to put it in your job ad. You've got to say, we are looking, and if you have a disability, you will get straight through to interview. Something along those lines. Because don't forget, we are, look, I'm telling you now, I'm... I am so tired of the fight. It's unbelievable. Like when I go to the, the airport, I'm petrified of what's going to happen to me on that plane. Are they going to kick me off because I'm in a wheelchair? Are they, are they going to say that my wheelchair is a dangerous goods because it's got batteries, even though I've got a dangerous goods certificate? I've been pl- you know, flying with the same wheelchair for 15 years. You know, everywhere you go, you're on fight mode. So if you can become an organisation or a person that allows us to turn off our fight mode, then you become a safe haven for us and then you'll see the true us. When we arrive, more than likely, we're on fight mode. We're ready for a fight and you're not seeing the real us. So that's, I guess, some ways you could do it. Carney, that's extraordinary insights um, through your eyes and uh, living with a disability and um, your advocacy is just so palpable and passionate. And um, Oh, thank you. I'm just so struck and just so proud of you and um, I'm sure so many people are. This is a big topic, so we don't have time today, but uh, I'm just so proud also that you're you're part of the, the Premier's Domestic and Family Violence Implementation Council and uh, such a blight on society. So it, it's not doing it justice, but just some quick insights into your perception of this issue of um, domestic and family violence. What are you seeing? What are you hearing? Look, it's complex, obviously. As practitioners, we're now focusing more on the prevention space around changing male behaviour because obviously we can't keep women safe if we don't change how men treat us. There's not enough funding or prisons or DV services to keep us safe. So I guess for men, it's about teaching men to be better bystanders So if they hear their friends talking about their partner, ex-partner, 
females in a certain way to reach out to them and say, mate, that's not right. How about I help you find some support? It sounds like you're unraveling. You may need support. You may need a service. Just like we say to women that are in DV, you need to go to a support service. So similar conversations need to be had amongst males. And I guess for females with a disability, I've spoken a lot about employment today. If we're the most unemployed group in the country and females with disabilities are way more unemployable than males, then it only makes sense that we're the most abused. So if we cannot financially look after ourselves, and this is a very simplistic way to look at it, but just obviously know there's more complexities to it. But if we can't financially afford to move out of the environment we're in, which is toxic or abusive or violent, and we're also scared of losing our children because mothers with disabilities lose their children at much higher rates than non-disabled mothers. We are three times more likely, women with disabilities, to experience sexual violence. We are currently 65% of people with disability have experienced physical, emotional or sexual violence, 65% of us. So if you add up that, we're three times more likely to experience sexual violence. And during COVID, three out of four women with a disability reported physical and sexual violence for the first time or at an increased level through COVID. Three out of four. To me, that's everyone. So we are left out of data. We're left out of services. We're rejected from mainstream DV services a lot because we haven't got a carer or or we're too complex. And then you go to the justice system, you think, well, if all women with intellectual disabilities and men or any kind of cognitive disability are deemed unreliable as a witness or diminished capacity, then of course they're never going to get justice or protection. So we need to start talking about people with disabilities in this space because as bad as DV is and it's an epidemic, um, it's a pandemic, it's way scarier than COVID, in the able-bodied space, then we have to realise whatever you're seeing, multiply it in our space. So we well, have to be part of that conversation. Well, um, very sobering. Uh... Yeah, sorry to end on that, on that note. But, you know, if you employ us, you are halfway there at helping us lead a good, fulfilling purposeful, safe life. That's a timely statement, Carney, as we conclude this episode of EDGE. What are your aspirations? You're a single mum with um, your wonderful son, Kai. What's up ahead for this person called Carney Liddell who's uh, made some (laughs) extraordinary achievements and contributions to this point? What, What are your hopes and aspirations? Oh, look, I just want to raise a happy kid. Like most parents, my aspirations, I can't control what happens to me when I leave these doors, you know, my front doors and what people are going to say to me. But I I hope that one day I won't have to answer people's personal insulting questions in front of my son or fight to fly in this country. But I can't control that. That's up to other people. So what I can control is, you know, leading the life. I'm really happy in my life with, with my son. But I really do look forward to the day that I can stop talking about how poorly my brothers and sisters with disabilities are living. I, I, I can't wait for the day that this, this changes because I'm, I'm getting fatigued talking about it and living it. 
and I just wanted to change. But in terms of aspirations, I just want to keep doing what I'm doing and live a, a happy life full of adventures. And, you know, I'm very blessed in so many ways. The only things that I, like, I'm not blessed with is how other people treat me. So if we could change that, which I think is pretty easy to change, attitude, then life would become, whew, I wouldn't know what to do with myself if I could have a day without fighting. Yeah, someone once said to me, um, the power rests within us and uh, we cannot let others define us. Certainly, Carney, you don't let other people define you. What I really love many things about what you do is your obvious strengths, uh, not physical as only, but that mental toughness, uh, the resilience. The commitment to making a difference and uh, I thank you on behalf of so many. So thank you. No worries. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. You can follow Dr. Stephen Brown on LinkedIn and Twitter on at Dr. Stephen Brown One. Please join us next time for another episode of EDGE.